As I mentioned before, this is the first Sunday in the season of Epiphany, and one way to look at it is kind of a hinge day that concludes the 12 days of Christmas and will escort us now into this new season that will take us right up into Ash Wednesday, which just happens to be Valentine's Day this year. That's kind of fun. During the Christmas season, we celebrate the fact that Jesus is God incarnate, God with meat on or flesh, carne, right? And we reflect on the grace and the humility and the power of God for being born among us in order to rescue us. That's, that's what Christmas is about. And when God works in the world to reach human beings, he most often works in and through other human beings. Just consider a few examples. Uh, To kick off his plan uh, in redeeming a broken and rebellious world, God called Abraham and Sarah. His method was not magical or merely instructional. It was incarnational. He chose a man and a woman to make a family who would make a nation who were supposed to be a blessing for all of the world. When the people of Israel were enslaved by the Egyptians, God called on Moses. Again, he didn't teleport the people out of slavery. He didn't do mind tricks on fair. He he sent a person in the flesh incarnate to come and to do his work. And in an ultimate show of humility and dedication to save that which was lost, God himself became a man in the person of Jesus. Christmas. God is a God who gets things done most often through his image bearers, through people. But how do other people know that God's people are God's people? How is the world to understand who God is and what he's like? See, Abraham was chosen by God. That's incarnate ministry. He, God chose to work through that person. But Abraham was fearful and selfish And when he passed through the land of Egypt, he was afraid that because Sarah, his wife, was so beautiful that Pharaoh might see her and kill him and take her. And so Moses, the man chosen by God and sent on a mission by God, lies. He tells Pharaoh that Sarah is is his sister um, and puts her at great risk, puts the mission of God at great risk. But then something happens. God gives Pharaoh an epiphany. God gives him a dream that warns Pharaoh not to touch Sarah. And in the end, this epiphany caused Pharaoh not only to release Abraham and Sarah, but to send them out with blessings of riches and honor. And Pharaoh realized Abraham and Sarah were God's agents. Incarnation and epiphany. Moses was fearful and anxious, and he had a stuttering problem. But when God called him to confront Pharaoh about releasing the Hebrew slaves, he gave an epiphany of sorts. He revealed the power of God and the authority of God by evidence of the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. Jesus was born on Christmas, but during epiphany, we tell the stories of people's eyes being opened to who Jesus is. Traditionally, those stories include Jesus turning water to wine at the wedding at Cana, the visit of the Magi from the east, which Torin just read, or the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus comes out of the water, the Spirit of God is hovering overhead, and the Father said, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now what's interesting to me about these epiphanies or revelations of Jesus' true identity is how we know about them at all. We only know about these events because of human witnesses who tell the story. 
let me ask you this question. How did you come to know about Jesus? How is it that you've come to be here today? Probably through people. Whether it was someone who told you about Jesus or invited you to a place where you were told about Jesus or even if you said, no, it was just the scriptures. Well, let me tell you something. The scriptures were translated for you by people and they were also the words of inspired people. People! Incarnate. Epiphanies. The story of witnesses. This evening, we will encounter a story in which Jesus sends out 72 witnesses, or as I think we'll see, 72 epiphanies who reveal the love and lordship of Jesus to other people. Would you stand with me, please, as we read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Now after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whether ha- whatever house you enter, first say, Shalom to this house. If a man of of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house eating and drinking what they, or stay in that house eating and drinking what they give for you. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter, and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. And be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the first things I want to say about trying to apply this passage is that we need to acknowledge that this setting, this passage, this mission is a unique situation. These witnesses are sent by Jesus who stands before them in the flesh. I don't think any of us have had that experience. He gives them his authority and power over demonic forces and power to heal. This is before Jesus rose from the dead, before he sent his Holy Spirit. So these 72 witnesses each seem to have been given these powers and abilities in equal measure, all 72 of them. 
In our current setting, that isn't the case. Yes, we are called to pray for healing, and yes, if you are a baptized follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit in you, and you can speak with authority over the demonic. But certain people have special gifts of deliverance, for example. I happen to know a couple uh, of uh, uh, people over the years who have this gift, and they will tell you it's kind of a curse because they're always getting called up to do strange deliverance stuff, and I'm glad they're in the world, um, but they don't sleep real well. So there's some people that have that gift. Other people have the gift of healing. You know, we do prayers for healing. We've seen people healed of different things, but, but some people uh, have the gift of healing, which God just seems to work in and through those types of, of gift sets more often. But not everyone has all the gifts. And so this is a unique situation where all 72 have all of these powers that Jesus gives them. The other thing um, is that there's a, there's a sense of urgency about this particular mission. Back in, in chapter 9, Jesus has started his journey toward Jerusalem, where he will be crucified. Like, he knows, I'm on the way to die. He knows his time is near, so he sends these missionaries out with a very specific instruction. They're to go to particular towns, not stopping to talk to people on the way, not taking extra money or extra shoes or clothes. Uh, those aren't mandates for all Christians for all times. In fact, if you just look ahead in the same gospel, Luke's gospel, to chapter 22, verse 35, he changes the instructions for a different scenario. He says, when I sent you out with, uh, without money belts and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And the disciples say, no, nothing. And then he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has a sword is to sell his coat uh, or whoever doesn't have a sword is to sell his coat and buy one. So different setting, different scenario. Our mission is shaped, first of all, by Jesus' calling. Our mission is shaped, second of all, by our context. Luke 10 is describing what happened with these 72 missionaries on this particular occasion. It is not prescribing the requirements of followers of Jesus for all time. Okay, that's the... That's the groundwork. So far, I've just said things that we don't have in common with the 72. But there's plenty to learn from and apply to our own lives. That's where I want to go now. First of all, consider the message of evangelism. When you think of the words evangelist or evangelism, what comes to mind? Let's just yell out some things. Loud. Tracks, yeah. Proclaiming, yeah. Yeah, some of, the, some of these things are just get, get it out there. Um, uh, and a lot of times the message, when I think of evangelism, the way I was kind of, you know, tracks or yelling or signs, but everything is quick, right? It's like, here's everything you need to know about Jesus in four steps or one spiritual, you know, truth or reality, right? Much of my experience of evangelism was centered on letting people know that they're sinners and they need saving. It was a message where I first needed to convince them that they're bad and then tell them about how Jesus died for them so that he could rescue for them from judgment that they didn't know that they were in danger of before I said that, that they were. Okay. While the major points there actually have biblical truth to them, that's not the whole gospel. That version of the gospel is insanely individualistic, isn't it? If 
about you and your problem and nothing else matters. But notice that the message Jesus sends them with. He sends them out with the good news that the kingdom of God has come near. Specifically, that with the arrival of the person of Jesus, God's kingdom is breaking into our world. That is the message of Jesus. It's the message he gives to his disciples, not just here, but over and over. It's the core also of the teaching of Paul. It is in Matthew's gospel and and Mark's gospel, the first teachings Jesus makes. In Luke's gospel, his first teaching is basically the unfleshing of what the kingdom means. It is the kingdom of God is Jesus's gospel. Now, here's the difference. If you were to go up to a first century Jewish person in this setting, like in the biblical setting, uh, and you say, did you hear the news? The kingdom of God is at hand. They might not believe you, but they would know what you're talking about. The arrival of the kingdom of God is what people were waiting for. It was alluded to in the prophets as the end of the age when God's reign would come to earth as it is in heaven. It was a time of forgiveness for those who repented and a time of judgment for the unrepentant. All of that is packed into that phrase, the kingdom of God. It was a time when shalom would come to the earth, a season where the oppressed would be brought up and corrupt leaders would be brought down. The kingdom of God was the term used for the age when God would make all things right. When I'm praying earlier in the service about the tension between the first coming and the second, uh, we're waiting for God to come and make all things right. And that's why Jesus gives the 72 power over the demons. That was a sign of God's authority that it had come in the person of Jesus. And that's why Jesus gives the 72 the power to heal. The prophets talked about when the kingdom of God comes, when the end of the age is here, uh, the lame will walk and the blind will see and the deaf will hear and the mute will talk and sing the praises of God. The 72 were sent out to say, look, this is happening now in our time because this this man, this God man, this Jesus is here and everything's changing. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, I'm not suggesting that the takeaway then is when we leave this building, we go out onto the streets and say, have you heard the news? The kingdom of God is at hand. Nobody, well, few people would know what you're talking about. Even Paul who was steeped in in Torah and the prophets, even Paul, when he was on mission to share the good news with non-Jewish people, people who didn't didn't assume knew the scriptures, he had to change the way he talked about the kingdom of God. That's why in Paul's letters, he doesn't often say the words kingdom of God as often as Jesus does. But instead of using the term, he chose to talk about aspects of the kingdom that matter to people. For example, in a broken and fractured world separated by class and religion, Paul preached that through Jesus, those walls that divide us came crashing down. That's an element of the kingdom of God. But he doesn't use the term because people wouldn't care. They don't know what that term means. But you know something everyone can understand is the idea of reconciliation. Don't you think that in our broken and fractured world, that Jesus could speak into our racial divides, into our political separate uh, polarities. Uh, that sounds like good news to me, if Jesus can affect those areas of life. You know, some of my best conversations about Jesus with people who don't know Jesus yet don't begin with discussions about the kingdom of God or with discussions about, hey, did you know you're pretty sinful? 
Lately, it's been listening to people's anxiety about the world. It's been my willingness to share in critique of the world, like, yeah, I totally see what you're saying, but also not to despair. I've literally been asked by people in this community um, in, in Bellingham, how can you have hope raising kids in this world? And then I get to say, I know it sounds a little weird, but I really believe that Jesus is ultimately in control. I, I believe that he will set things right. I believe this gives me inner peace that I can't explain. But it helps me to keep going. And I believe that, that Jesus has called me, called us to begin living as if things were already fixed. To live as though what the Bible calls the kingdom was already starting to break in. And there's more. I'm able to tell people about how I'm part of the problem because when you share how Jesus forgives but you don't share how you're also part of the problem, people just like, oh, there's a Christian who's basically justifying their bad behavior because Jesus forgives them. Guess they can just go on sinning. But that's not the gospel. I mentioned how Jesus forgives me, but also how he's shaping my character and how that shaping of the character, so, you know, th there have been parts of my life where I have just, by the grace of God, changed. I used to have a pretty foul mouth when I was a sailor in the Coast Guard, right? And I, I came to Jesus, and I just like, I don't want to talk like that anymore. It was just, and I, that was one of those things that just shifted for me. It was just, it just wasn't hard. But there's other areas of life where, where Jesus' conviction, his shaping of our character might lead us to counseling, probably will. And it, it definitely leads me in spiritual direction, which is a, a, a relationship where someone helps me listen to God because I know I need help with that. So, so Jesus forming and fixing our character isn't just in a vacuum or magic or like downloading a new program into a memory stick or something. It, it involves people. There's incarnation and epiphany in relationships. You see, Jesus wants his witnesses to be about his kingdom. I think it's revealing that Jesus does not give his missionaries specific canned phrases or catchy one-liners. He wants us to tell others about Jesus and why Jesus matters. But whose job is it to tell people about Jesus? Well, let's take a look at the 72 and see if we can get some answers on that. Were the 72, little quiz time, were they men or women? Hmm. Were they rabbis and scholars, or were they lay people? Were they young, or were they old? Were they articulate and outgoing, or were they socially awkward? That's genius that we don't know. I think it's intentional. In Luke 9, Jesus sends the 12 disciples on a mission. We know their names. We know some of their personalities. We know they know Jesus well. We might look at them and say, well, of course the 12 were sent by Jesus. They were like hanging out on campfires by him and getting all of his inside teaching and like they can touch him and that makes sense. But the 72, intentionally nameless, they are everyone. They are you and me. And you know, you and I actually have a better vantage point because they didn't even know about the cross yet. They didn't know about the resurrection yet. They didn't have the gifts of the spirit yet. 
the messengers, the 72, were successful, not because they had any knowledge or special skill that they possessed, but they were successful because they were obedient to the call of Jesus. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you've been called to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all the things that Jesus taught and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You don't need to feel qualified. I know it really helps, but it's not a requirement. You and I need to trust that the Lord of the harvest is already at work. And catch this important detail. Not only is Jesus already at work in the people, he will follow up with them. Let me just read that part. This is Luke 10. Now after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was to come. Sends them ahead. He's going to do the follow-up. Now, this is the great thing about the world in which the Holy Spirit is on the loose among us. I know this one. Whenever I'm talking to somebody, whether I met them for the first time or I've known them all my life, I know that the Spirit has already been talking to them. And I know that when I talk to them, God is going to follow up with them. Okay, it's a daunting task if you've been taught that evangelism is about you cold calling a person and taking them from zero to praying the sinner's prayer, right? If that's evangelism, that's daunting, oppressive, and no wonder it's so hard for most of us to do unless you just really have a drive or a gift. But what if that's not evangelism? What if evangelism is recognizing that the Spirit's already at work and that God's gonna follow up anyway? And it's a privilege that you and I might be one piece in the puzzle, one link in the chain, one thread in a braided rope that's a lifeline to somebody else. I think that's what the Bible teaches about evangelism, that it's a community thing. And that takes a lot of the pressure off of you having to do it all. Rather, we're part of an, a net or a community or, uh, just go with your mind, I'm just gonna stop because I'm rambling, but you know what I'm saying? It's not all up to you, but you do fill an important part. We've looked at the message, which is the kingdom of God is at hand and Jesus is the king. We've looked a little bit at the messengers. The 72 could be anyone, and you and I are called to join in. Now let's look at the method. First, pray. So important. How many of you, this is rhetorical, just inside. How many of you pray for lost friends, family, coworkers, classmates, neighbors, on a regular basis? Right, I know the answer, usually, unless you're like super stellar. It's up and down, right? Up and down. And I admit, my evangelistic prayer life is up and down. And with the new year, I've resurrected my practice of morning prayer with both silence and evangelistic prayer. I know I've started and failed more times than I can count, but Jesus in this season is giving me grace and I'm thankful for each morning that I get up and I'm able to, to, to pray a few words. I've got a list in the front of my Bible with your names on it because you're part of the church and with people's names that aren't part of the church, right? There's people I interact with regularly who are part of my family. And I don't have a perfect one-size-fits-all solution, but I encourage you as you're making your resolutions and you're considering how to take better care of your body or, um, I don't know, other personal goals, 
Would you consider making that a goal of praying for people that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into the field? That's even changed my focus a little bit because, you know, sometimes I'll pray for people in my life and, Lord, give me an opportunity to share or give me an opportunity, uh, give them openness to have me share. But what if I was also praying, Lord, release workers into the harvest so that I'm surprised the next time I see that person and somebody else has told them about Jesus and I get to follow up a little. Wouldn't that be great if there were just more workers in the harvest? Pray for more people to be sent out and to share the good news of Jesus with the people in your life. And you know what will happen. First of all, you'll start to see Jesus answering that prayer. And second, you'll find, it's impossible not to, that when you start praying for people, your own heart will start to get softened for them. Your own heart will start to get more sensitive to where they're at on the spiritual um, side of things. And you'll develop more of a love. So part of Jesus' method of evangelism is prayer. The other part is bearing witness. Notice that the 72 are to be a blessing to the community. They stay in people's houses. Again, that's a communal or, or contextual nuance of their day and age. But you and I aren't traveling like that. Like, we actually live in communities. I've been to some of your homes. I know where some of you live. Like, you have neighbors. You're already, like, there in a place. That's part of being a neighborhood church, too. It's like, we're, we're in a place. We have a witness. We're already incarnate to our neighbors and our, and our friends and our family. How might we be epiphanies to them? How might our acts of love, our words of love, uh, and the presence of Jesus, like, reveal the Lord to them? Maybe you feel afraid to talk about Jesus with people. Maybe you feel like you'll be rejected. And Jesus, he tells us right up, like, you'll be rejected You'll have successes and you'll also be rejected. But I wonder if our fear and rejection is because of the methods that we've been taught as well. When I was a newer Christian, we were taught that evangelism was informing people of their sin, getting them to pray a prayer of repentance, and then accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness. We were taught that we had to win arguments and defend the faith. But knowing the reason for what we believe, while that is extremely important, but I'm not sure the majority of people out there are sitting around saying to themselves, you know, I really want to believe in Jesus, but I just have questions about the Trinity that that's the only thing really holding me back. Um, can you explain that to me? Or I've never heard someone say, I would totally be a follower of Jesus if only you could explain the resurrection or tell me how to interpret Joshua and Judges. Those, those two books really screw me up. Those two books screw me up. They're weird. Without presenting gross heresy, I can't really explain the Trinity either. It's a mystery. Most of the non-Christian people I know don't think about Jesus much at all. They're not hung up on those questions yet. Most of them, if they hear about the church, it's either in a, in a negative light because of what they've heard in the media, or it's in a sort of benign sense, like, oh, church, that, those are basically like the Elks Club, right? They do nice stuff for people. The world needs to see people of hope, needs to experienced people of love, people who bless, people who can offer the hope of Jesus in a world of fear and anger and grief and anxiety. So there's the message of Jesus, there's the messengers of Jesus, and we're called to embody the message of Jesus, to be an epiphany for others of who Jesus is. There's just one more piece I want to close with, and there's a warning in this passage. 
Jesus mentions these towns, Capernaum and Chorazin. Uh, these were towns that Jesus had taught in. Three of the disciples were, that's their hometowns. He performed signs and wonders in these places. And the people in those towns, many of them knew the scriptures. They were Jewish towns. And they don't actually receive the good news of Jesus. They never did put their trust in him. They don't join his community. They listen. They enjoy the benefits of Jesus and his followers, but they don't make any changes of, subs of substance in their lives. They don't repent. And they're in danger of being rejected. And I just am aware of how dangerous a thing it is that we do when we gather each week and we sit under the teaching of Jesus and we hear the good news and we experience good things of Jesus. We enjoy the benefit of being part of this community. And I just want to say for those who have never followed, to those of you who have followed a long time and are just feeling apathetic, maybe your love has grown cold. Hear Jesus calling. Hear the good news that the king has come and presents himself to us. His kingdom is breaking in, in your heart, in this community, and in his world. His love really does cover your sin. He really does want to make you new from the inside out. He really does love you more than you can comprehend. Even though as soon as I said that, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but starts going, no, even past the yeah, buts, he loves you. And before he calls you to a mission, like if you're hearing, uh, 72, okay, I'm going to be on mission, I don't even feel like I love Jesus right now. Before he calls you on a mission of, of, of spreading love around the world, he wants you to experience that. I firmly believe that he wants you and I to be living in his love. So we share it from an authentic place. Deep in the broken, cynical, callous parts of your hearts, he wants in there. And the parts that were damaged by someone, maybe even someone who claimed to be representing Jesus, let the Lord reveal himself as your safe and holy savior. Let him produce an epiphany of himself in your heart. Spirit of God, for taking the groanings of our hearts, bringing them to the feet of Jesus in the throne, throne room, and presenting them as articulate cries. Lord, we thank you for the dignity of sending us into your world be your image bearers and representatives. Lord, we also confess those areas that we feel inadequate, where we feel cold to you, uncaring to the world. And we pray for the miracle of an epiphany in our hearts. That you would, like is so often described, you would strangely warm our hearts, Lord. That you would set us ablaze with love for you that we didn't think we could experience before. 
with love for our, our family and our neighbors that that defies understanding. Thank you, Lord, that I believe you want these things maybe even more than I do, maybe more than, than any of us understand. Help us to receive them.